Good afternoon. Welcome back. Welcome to those on the live stream. Great to see you. My name's Pete. Together my wife, B. we lead the church here. So if we've not met you before, massive welcome to those that have recently arrived in London for new studies, new jobs. Massive welcome to you. I'm going to be speaking this evening on a New Testament vision for church, but I want to get going by I'm telling you about an article I read a little while ago about men's urinal. Stick with me, there is a tenuous link. Um, This article was about a group of researchers that set out with the goal of improving the accuracy of men when they go to the toilet. I I think we can all agree that's a worthwhile endeavour. And what they discovered in their research is is that if men have something to aim at, they are 80% more accurate. So they came up with a number of different designs this was their first design. You can see hopefully a fly. And that isn't an unfortunate fly that got hit mid-flow. That's etched into the design. Because men approach the urinal, they think that fly is going to get it. Um, and because of that mindset, they're 80% more accurate. Um, the designers got really excited, like a little fly can have that kind of impact. I'm sure we can beat that design. This was their next design called the P-Goal, um, where you approach the urinal. I don't know if you can see it. There's a little ball. You've got to pee the ball into the back of the net. Who wouldn't want to go to the toilet in a urinal like that? Now, many of you will know we're in the middle of a building project and one of my tasks, pretty much my only task with a building project is to come up with the appropriate urinals for the men's toilet, right? And I was like, well, we've, we've got the option of the fly. We could order in some peagles, but, but I'm hungry for something more than that. Um, I found this design. I think you're gonna love it. Um, here you go. You're skiing down a slope and if you wanna go left, you pee left. And if you want to go right, you pee right. Now that is extraordinary. Unbelievable indeed. The world's first pee-controlled video game. Worthwhile investment. Everyone say amen. I felt like you weren't really with me. Um, I'm joking. Obviously, we're not going to waste our money um, on those video games, but a huge amount of fun, right? Um, Now, what's that got to do with church? Nothing and and everything. Here's the tenuous link. When it comes to church, I think if we don't know where we're aiming, we're going to miss the mark. That's the tenuous link, right? That it's really important at a time like this, we understand what is a New Testament vision for church, that we know where we're aiming. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, there are a lot of metaphors used for the church, that we're the bride of Christ, that we're a family, we're a temple of the Holy Spirit, we're a body with many parts, and the list goes on. But there's not really a neat, tidy definition for church. In fact, the closest we get to a definition for church is the Greek word that's used throughout the Scriptures. The Greek word is ekklesia. Just say it with me, ekklesia. Beautiful, beautiful. It's a compound word. That means two words shoved together to form a new word. Um, the two words are ek, meaning out of, and klesia from the Greek verb kalio, meaning to call out. So if you put them together, literally means called out ones. 
It's what it means to be the church, the called out ones. But in the context of the, of the first century and the early centuries, this word had two main meanings. Firstly, in the sort of like context of Greece, any town, any city had an elected civil assembly that would govern over the affairs of that town or city. Like a town council, essentially. And that town council was called the ecclesia, the called out ones, the elected ones that essentially would govern the affairs of the city. So how fascinating that when the followers of Jesus started following the way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom of God, when they, when they were trying to articulate what they were about, they basically said, we're the true ecclesia. That's incredibly subversive. Like we're the true called out ones, invited by God to share in the rule and reign of his kingdom purposes. Extraordinary that the church would adopt that language. But there was a second use of the word. So in the context of Rome, when an emperor wanted to gather at least part of his army, he would send out a summons. The summons was the ek kalio, the call out. And the summoned ones, in other words, the army, they were the ecclesia, the assembled ones, the summoned ones. And they would be called out. They'd be given a specific purpose to take the expansion of Rome, to go behind enemy lines and extend the influence of Rome. So how incredible that the followers of Jesus, when they were like, what language should we use to articulate what we're about? What about the true ecclesia? Not summoned by Caesar, but summoned by God himself, invited into his story, sent behind enemy lines to extend the kingdom of God in the world. Like this is remarkable, subversive thinking of the church beginning to expand. So if we were to take those two understandings of the word, this is the definition I think we essentially land with, that the church is a worldwide community of Jesus followers, surrendered to the Lordship of Christ through which God's purposes for the world are to be realised. Now just pause for one moment. I want you to think about Pentecost. It's a key moment in the story of the church. It's the birth moment for the church. And when the church is birthed, the Spirit of God is poured out. The breath of God breathes into the followers of Jesus. But to think of that, you want to think of it as a fulfillment of a key prophetic promise spoken to a guy called Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel chapter 37. He has this very strange vision and he sees before him a scene of death, a valley of dry bones. And God says, I want you to prophesy to these bones and tell them to live. Listen to these words. This is verse four and five, Ezekiel 37. Then God said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. Fast forward to verse 10. Ezekiel says, so I prophesied as he commanded and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet a vast army, an ecclesia, right? The church is birthed as the Spirit of God is poured out on the people of God. 
Amen. That's an amen from one of the kids, and I love it. And just to say to the families, this is a family service. So if your kids are kicking off, bring it on. You don't need to escape. We love it. So Scout, you keep saying your amens, and I know you're with me. Okay, so back to this definition. Church is a worldwide community of Jesus followers, surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, through which God's purposes for the world are to be realised. Let's break it down bit by bit. Firstly, the church is a worldwide community of Jesus followers. Church is more than community, right? But it's never less than true community. Like KXC is a local family, part of a global family. We're made in the image and likeness of a God who exists in community, the triune life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are designed to live in communion with Him and communion with one another. That's how we've been made. Just put your hand in the air if you've heard of Delia Smith. Okay, quite, quite a few, relief. Um, Delia Smith was like my generation's Jamie Oliver, famous chef. If you've not seen her half-time speech at a Norwich City game, let's be having you, where are you? Then you need to Google it and you will not be disappointed. An epic speech she gave to the Norwich City fans um, at a half-time game. A- anyway, listen to this article about Delia Smith. Delia Smith never planned to become a cookery writer, says Mick Brown in the Daily Telegraph. After leaving her secondary modern with no qualifications, she worked as a hairdresser and a shop assistant and only learned to cook when a boyfriend wouldn't stop talking about what a good cook his previous girlfriend had been. Like, ouch, ouch. Now she's such an institution that her no-nonsense views on everything from free-range chicken too expensive to, for poor families to frozen mashed potatoes, why shouldn't busy people cut corners, make headlines. Yet her greatest passion is no longer food, but football. Amen. It's both and, by the way. Long-term Norwich City supporters, Smith and her husband, joined the board of the team in 1996 and have since sunk £9 million into the club. There's no chance of making any of it back. But as Smith, who has no children, explains, there's nothing else we'd want to do with the money. It's not just that she loves the game. She also believes that a well-run football club is one of the few places left where you'll find community in its truest sense. When you see a community... Um, at a football match. That's how we're all supposed to be in the world, she says. You're bonded with other people, sharing the same goal. You have joy and you have pain, particularly if you're a North City fan. Not deep pain, but perhaps for some people it might be. And this is the closing comment. She says, you understand what being human is following a football team. She's gone pretty big, right? You understand what being human is following a football team. She's basically saying we exist and we've been wired to exist in community, in family. And we believe that that deep longing within each of us is satisfied in the family of God centred around the person of Jesus. I've been watching a fair bit of the Premier League. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. But wouldn't it be tragic if the return of the fans to the terraces was greater than the return of the faithful to church? Wouldn't it be tragic if the passion of the fans on the terraces was greater than the passion of the faithful in church? Wouldn't it be tragic if the commitment of the fans trumped the commitment of the faithful to their local church? Fans are gathering in thousands upon thousands. There has been a slow and gradual return to the church. Like this is a moment for us to wake up and recognise the power of the local church, the vehicle through which God's purposes will unfold 
hold on our watch. So this is a, a, a moment to regroup, to press into the family life of our community. And I want to offer three encouragements. I'm going to repeat what I said at the big weekend. Uh, here's the three. Be in the room. Notice who's not in the room and create the community you want to be a part of. Number one, be in the room. Tick. You know, if you're in the room, well done. Um, this is a moment for us to realize the formational power of the gathered church. It's extraordinary, its power to form us into the likeness of Jesus. This is the gift of community. Like when we come and, and, and be part of a community like this, we're around people that have a different upbringing and worldview to us, different political preferences, different value systems, like different understanding of what makes the world tick. And when we bump into each other, something happens. It's like we're on a journey towards Christ-likeness of transformation. They're on a journey towards Christ-likeness. And when we bump into each other, other there's sparks and some of those sparks are sparks of attraction like chemistry you know what I'm talking about hey nice to see you as we bump into each other on our journey towards Christ likeness we, we should chat afterwards sometimes that happens but some of the sparks are sparks of tension like offense disagreement finding each other difficult but when we're confronted with those situations it's an opportunity to grow to learn to love people not like us. We suddenly find that the Spirit of God is at work in those moments of tension and we're formed as a family. And Jesus says, in fact, when that happens, it will be a witness to the world. This is how the world will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Leslie Newbigin, brilliant theologian, he said this, the only hermeneutic of the gospel a fancy way of saying the only way to understand the gospel is to find a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Like how are people going to understand the message of the gospel in the world around us? They're going to see our love for one another and the lights are going to come on like, wow, I want to belong to a community marked out by grace and love. I want to be a part of it. You see, online church won't confront your selfishness. Online church won't be an inconvenience to you. Online church has been and will be an incredible tool for mission to reach people that are self-isolating, that are vulnerable, to reach people that might be frightened to, to rock up and, and come to a church service, but want to see it online to understand it more. An incredible tool for mission and a horrible tool for discipleship. An incredible tool for mission, horrible tool for discipleship. I want to encourage us to like be in the room, come regularly. Let's learn to love one another and be the family of God. Secondly, notice who isn't in the room. Let's sort of rewind the clocks to like back end of 2019. If we'd been gathering then, can you remember where we were gathering then? Can you remember who was in the room? And just ask yourself, like, is there anyone now, 18 months later, who's not in the room? And why aren't they in the room? And it could be because they moved out of London. Incredibly selfish, but some people have chosen to do that. I'm obviously joking. Um, God called them on to a new adventure. It could be because people have lost their faith, given up on church. Tragic, but that has been the case for some. Um, and the kind of other reason is, is maybe we just don't know. Maybe we just don't know. But if that's the case, surely we should find out. Like if one of the defining markers of being the church is to be a family, it should be really hard to leave the family, right? Like every so often people leave because God calls them on. At that point we celebrate, yes and amen, woohoo! 
Every so often it's because there's a breakdown of relationship. That's tragic because of our brokenness. That is the case sometimes. But when people sneak out of the back door and no one ever notices, that is tragic. That is tragic, particularly if we say we're a family and we want to do life as family. If there's someone that was in the room two years ago but isn't in the room now, ask yourself, where are they? And if, if the answer is I don't know, why don't you pick up the phone? Maybe this week, say, hey, I noticed you weren't at church like on Sunday or for the last six months. Um, and it doesn't have to be a moment of judgment. I'm worried about you and the state of your soul. It might be like, I've really missed you. Just wondering if you're okay. Like that's what family would do. Let's be family to one another. So get back in the room, notice who's not in the room and then create the community you want to be a part of. We've experienced so much change. I know a number of people at KXE that have been around for a long time have begun to articulate, I feel like I'm new. I've been here 10 years and I, I feel like everything's new. And it feels a bit overwhelming to try and establish community again when there's been so much change. And I get that. So I want to say to those that are new in the room, welcome to KXE. Welcome to our story. We are beyond excited, kind of excited to the point that it might freak you out, that you've joined this family and are becoming part of our story. And for those that have been here for five years, seven years, 10 years, can I just say, now is the time to sacrificially press in again. Like do what you did at first to create community and create family. Let's collectively invest the time, energy, resources to build the kind of community that we want to be a part of. So that's part one of this definition. We're a family. We're part of a worldwide community. Here's the second part. We're surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. That means we have zero tolerance for idolatry. The, the foundational principle of, of the Roman world was Caesar is Lord. We bow the knee to Caesar. We work for the advance of his empire. Caesar is Lord. The statement of the early church, Jesus is Lord, basically was a proclamation that Caesar isn't Lord. And that kind of proclamation could get you killed. The early church had zero tolerance for idols. They weren't interested in wealth, in status, in power. They didn't want anything to do with idolatry. Jesus is Lord. Costly proclamation, a proclamation of worship. What is the proclamation of our age? Well, it isn't Caesar is Lord, right? The proclamation is that you're Lord. The idol of our age is autonomy. Auto meaning self, nomos meaning law, a law unto yourself. You submit to nothing, you submit to no one, you are Lord, you call the shots, no one gets in your way, right? That's the idol, that's the narrative that surrounds us. But if you're Lord, you need to know this. If you're gonna be Lord of your life, you also need to be saviour. If you're gonna be the Lord of your life, you also need to be Savior. Now, when we find ourselves in a moment like this, a moment of fragility, where over the last 18 months, we've become acutely aware of our brokenness, our dysfunction. Many of us are on our knees. We need healing. We need restoration. We need salvation. What's the remedy offered by the surrounding culture? And the answer is you need to love yourself, like self-care, 
That's going to be the pathway to healing self-love. That's going to be the pathway to human flourishing. Now, this was happening, by the way, before COVID-19. I tried to wave a flag to say, can you see what's happening on our watch in the church? That people were rediscovering the spiritual practices and, and disciplines and redirecting them towards the end goal of personal wellness. Not towards character formation to the likeness of Christ, not towards participation in his kingdom story, towards personal wellness. And I'd be in these conversations all the time as a pastor where people are saying, I've discovered Sabbath, game changer. Unbelievable. Once a week I rest and it's really good for my personal wellness. Not about intimacy with the Father, a day of, of union with Christ, it's like personal wellness. Chatting to people about meditation. I wake up each morning, five minutes, I focus on my breathing. Breathing's good for my personal wellness. You bet it is. If you stop breathing, you're not gonna be well, right? But it's like, I, I breathe in, I breathe out. I become aware of myself. And I've discovered it, it's really good for my well-being. Chatting to people who, who started making lists of, of things they're grateful for. They're like, I start each day, I, I write a list of things I'm grateful for to myself for. And I realise that it's really good for my personal wellness, right? Now, I'm exaggerating. I'm exaggerating to make the point. We are living in a mental health epidemic. Some of us are highly anxious, myself included at times. Some of us are displaying signs of trauma, post-traumatic stress, right? What I'm trying to expose is the remedy being offered by the world that you need to love yourself to healing. How are you gonna get better? Self-care. And I just wanna break it to you. You're good, but you're not that good. You don't have the power to save yourself. You don't have the resources to love yourself back to life. Listen to the words of this rabbi from the first century um, named Jesus. He, he basically says this to his disciples, his apprentices. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. That's not self-care, by the way. That's not self-love. Deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, who basically says this to his, his men, uh, mentee, Timothy. He says, mark this, Timothy, there will be terrible times in the last days. Now, when Paul wants to really emphasise something, he ups the ante and talks about the last days. It's like apocalyptic language. The word apocalypse means unveiling. We've, we've been living through apocalyptic days where things have been exposed for how they really are. So when Paul uses that language, he's basically saying, can you actually see if we pull the curtain back how things really are in the culture that surrounds us? He says, there'll be terrible times in the last days and, and here's the sign, people will be lovers of themselves. Like they will buy into this philosophy that love of self will lead towards human flourishing. He then goes on, concludes, they will have a form of godliness, but deny its power. They will have these practices, spiritual disciplines, not pointed towards character formation to the likeness of Christ, participation in his story, pointed towards personal wellness. Like I just want to expose the narrative that many of us are buying into. And the more we focus on self-care, self-love, the more anxious we're getting, the more sick people are getting. I, I meet people who have such phenomenal boundaries in place, they don't have any friends. No, I can't hang out. I, I've, I've got some strong boundaries around me. Or they've got such strong boundaries in place that they're, they're not participating in local church. If your boundaries mean that you're isolated, you've got the wrong boundaries. 
If your boundaries means that you don't have time or energy to serve the most vulnerable in society, you've got the wrong boundaries. If your boundaries are so strong that you can't serve at your local church, you've got the wrong boundaries. Now, I say this to someone who's a big believer in having the right boundaries in place. But can you see what's happening around us? It's almost too much. So what do we do in moments of deep brokenness? Because that's where we are right now. We come to the Father and we say, God, would you pour out your love upon me? Would you have mercy on me? I'm so fragile. I'm so broken. I can't love myself to life, but you can love me to life. So would you come and minister to me? So when it comes to the local church, there's a number of practices that the church globally over human history has been practicing that enable us to center ourselves around Jesus, to love God before we love ourselves. Here they are, celebrating and performing the sacraments, reading and submitting to the scriptures, tracking and keeping in step with the spirit. Let me just break it down. Celebrating and performing the sacraments. Right, we enter the story of God, the family of God through baptism. When we see people getting baptised like at the big weekender, how epic was that? It's a reminder that our story is centred around the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. And we're sustained in our story as we celebrate the Eucharist, gather around the Lord's table. He's front and centre, right? He's the one that we worship. So we celebrate and perform the sacraments. Preach it, Scout. Thank you for joining me. Um, Secondly, reading and submitting to the Scriptures. We don't just read them. Here's the awkward part. We submit to them, right? We figure out what do the Scriptures say? What does that mean for our context? And then we do the hard work of like, oh, that's hard, it's costly, but I'm going to submit This is what the church has done in every age, wrestle with the scriptures and then sought to submit to the scriptures. Thirdly, tracking and keeping step with the spirit, discerning what the spirit's doing. To be a charismatic church doesn't mean you clap louder than the other churches or have more hands in the air, a bit more shaking every so often when there's real power in the room, someone will fall over. The, The real test of a charismatic church is how quickly will they rip up their game plan, their strategy when the spirit nudges them to move. If they're a charismatic church, they will take their best plans, put them in the bin because God has spoken. They want to step out in obedience, right? That's what it means to be a truly charismatic church, to trust in the prompting nudges of the Spirit, particularly in the area of the prophetic. Now, depending on your tradition, each tradition will have a different climactic moment in their service. In a more Catholic tradition, the climactic moment is the Eucharist. Everything builds to the drama of the Eucharist. And when it's done well, it is epic. In an evangelical church, the climactic moment is the 40-minute, amen, 40-minute exposition of Scriptures. And done well, it is beautiful. In a charismatic church, the climactic moment is the ministry time. Come, Holy Spirit. What's the climactic moment at KXC? The answer is we want, we want all of it. The Eucharist, the exposition of Scripture, ministry in the power of Spirit, coffee, we want every bit to feel like a climactic moment because that's what life is like when God is in the room. These are three practices that keep us centred around the Lordship of Christ. Final thing then, final part of the vision is through which God's purposes for the world are to be realised. And and we just got to grab hold of this. This is remarkable that God could do whatever he wants to do without us, but would rather and has chosen to do it with us. What does Paul say in Romans? The gift and call of God are irrevocable. 
By that, he basically means he's chosen to accomplish his, his purposes in and through his humanity. He's not going to go back on that. So what he wants to do, he's going to accomplish it through his hands and feet, you and me. So what are the purposes of God? Um, and I think the best place to go is Isaiah 61. It's Freedom Sunday after all. Um, this is the passage that Jesus quotes when he begins his ministry. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me. The word Christ literally means anointed one. Yeah, Christ anointed one. To be a Christian means to be in the anointed one. In other words, to operate with the same anointing. That same anointing is upon you. This is unbelievable. So what's the anointing for? To proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Freedom Sunday, right? And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Now that year of the Lord's favour language, that's basically from the Levitical Code. Um, the law that the Jewish community lived by, every 50 years they would celebrate this year of Jubilees. Now what would happen in the year of Jubilees, all prisoners were released from prison. All slaves were released from slavery. Extraordinary. All debts were cancelled. All of the land was redistributed evenly amongst the 12 tribes. Why? Because their society, like our society, gravitates towards injustice and inequality. Rich people get rich. Poor people get poor. And God says, I detest that. So every 50 years, there will be a reset button moment. Like jubilee means joy, means freedom. And that year of jubilee will point to how things were in the Garden of Eden, where there was no sin, sickness, suffering, no inequality, no injustice. But more than pointing back to Eden, it will point forward to the life of the age to come where there'll be no inequality, no injustice. And Jesus is basically saying the purpose of the kingdom of God is to create foretastes of what is to come, to create colonies of heaven. This is the language that Paul uses in, um, in Philippians. He basically says, we're citizens of heaven. Now, those reading it in, in sort of northern Greece, Philippi was like, aren't we citizens of Rome? Everyone knew that a citizen of Rome was trying to create a colony of Rome in northern Greece. Paul said, uh-uh, you're a citizen of heaven. You're creating a colony of heaven here in northern Greece so people can taste and see that God is good and in his kingdom the sick get well and those that are enslaved get free and the blind begin to see this is the purpose of God to display his favour to the world. This is what it means to be church. Worldwide community of Jesus followers surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, intolerant of idols through which God's purposes for the world are to be realised. And let me close with a story then. It's incredibly hot on stage, by the way. I'm just going to take this off. Thank you. I think that was my wife, but it could have been my brother Steve, which is very concerning. There we go. Um, story. So basically, a couple of weeks ago, we had this moment where we were having a barbecue in our garden. And we'd kind of finished the barbecue. Benj, our eldest son, had eaten half his burger um, and then went inside to finish something. We were tidying up, but then we left the plate on the table outside with half a burger, but he'd left his wallet on the table, right? Anyway, about an hour later, we, we go outside and we notice that the burger's gone. The, the plate is there, but the burger's gone and the wallet's gone. We're like, what? Who's taken it? We also noticed this is fairly gross, but there was urine on the plate. So 
pretty grim, right? Um, some of you are thinking, one of the other kids? That's disgusting. No, no, it wasn't, wasn't one of the other kids. A fox, because we've got a real problem with foxes, had basically seen the burger, eaten the burger, urinated on the plate. And I don't get that part of the story, but it clearly done that. And taken the wallet. Why would it have taken the wallet? Um, we thought the fox isn't going to need the wallet, so surely they've dropped it. And we were hunting the garden. Even at like night, it was like 10 o'clock in the dark, torches. Where is this wallet? I was livid. I, I was ready to kill a fox. It's illegal. I didn't. I was ready to kill a fox with my bare hands. Um, anyway, went to bed that night. I, I was just frustrated. I was like, this is wrong. And this is spiritual attack. And, and, and I'm taking matters into my own hands. And I was like, I said to me, like, do you know what I'm going to do tomorrow morning when we wake up when it's light? I'm going to go to the bottom of our garden. I'm going to climb over the wall. There's this kind of no man's land area where the, the foxes have their den. I'm going to go into their territory. I'm getting the wallet back. Because I don't want the, the ball ache of basically reordering Benji's bank card, his school card, his oyster card, and the five quid in the wallet. I, I'm going there. So I wake up the next morning. I'm charged. And I, I'm speaking in tongues. I get to the bottom of the garden. I climb the wall. I'm, I'm in the fox's territory. I find one of our footballs, which is really fun. Threw it over. I was like, that's a Billy bonus. Um, but couldn't find the wallet anywhere. I was like, oh, I was gutted, really gutted. Got back on the wall. Um, and as I was walking back to our garden uh, along the wall, I noticed on the hut, on the kind of shed of the, the garden next to us, um, a white shiny thing. And I, and I looked, I was like, what is that? And I, I literally climb onto their shed thinking, if they see me, this is so awkward. I'm on the shed and I'm like, it's Benji's school card. And I'm like, get in. Get in, that's what I came for. And I kept looking and I found his bank card. I was like, get in. I kept looking, I found his oyster card. I kept looking, I found the five pound note. The only thing I didn't find was the actual wallet. So I get back into our garden. I strut back into the house. I go upstairs. I was like, Benj, you won't believe what your dad's done. I went into the fox's territory and guess what I found? And I pulled out this card, his school card, because he was really stressed about it. I was like, here's your school card. And he's like, you didn't. I was like, I did. <laughs> Gave it to him. He's like, I found something else. Like, what, what did you find? Bank card. Yeah, I didn't. I was like, I did, I did. He's like, thanks, Dad. I was like, I found something else. Oyster card. He's like, yes, yes. And I found something else, a five pound note. And we start dancing in his bedroom. He's literally just woken up. I felt so great. Um, and when I was reflecting on that, do you know what? This, this was the verse that came to mind because there's a spiritual link. There always is. Um, in Joel 2, which is the prophecy about the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, the birth of the church. Part of that prophecy is about returning from exile. And we're experiencing some measure of return right now. Um, but the promise of the prophet is that the Lord will restore what the locusts have eaten. We've lived in days, we've been robbed. We've been robbed of so much. Some robbed of peace, some robbed of joy, some people robbed of their loved ones or seeing their loved ones. This last season has taken so much from us and I believe it's a promise of the Spirit that the Lord will lead us into places where we recover everything that was stolen. The packaging may have been lost, but who cares anyway? The treasure inside the Lord wants to return to us 
And I believe that for us as a church, some of the treasure of what it means to be church, family, doing life together, joyfully alive in the spirit, intolerant of idols that surround us, a holy set apart people living for the purposes of God, a cause to live for. That's what we were made for in Christ, to join in his purposes. I believe the Lord wants to restore all that the locusts have eaten. And in that restoration, what's the best language for it? Jubilee, joy, freedom Sunday, the delight of walking and talking with God and being part of his family. Why don't we stand together?